This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. Welcome to the show for another week. Coming to you from our individual homes during lockdown. During lockdown, strange times we're living in. We are in a time. <laughs> In a time, aren't we? Oh, Alicia, we are in a time. Oh, I don't even know. I don't uh, look. Let's just be real for a second. I don't think any of us know what to say. No one knows what to say about these times that we are living in. Of course, very recently in the US, there have been well, currently are at the time of recording in the midst of. When we are recording today, of course, the US is reeling and the world is reeling from the brutal, let's not Mm -hmm. kid ourselves, brutal, brutal murder of George Floyd and the fallout of the protests that have been Mm -hmm. happening in response to what is basically now institutionalised racism and Mm -hmm. violence. And violence. State-sanctioned racism and violence. And, of course, you know, we can't not, mention this we can't not acknowledge this at Mm. the outset of today's show particularly i think because here in australia it is reconciliation week (laughs) and this if you're not australian this is the week where well look to what extent it is successful or to what extent it is a gesture i like to think that we can make progress through Events like Reconciliation Week, but it is a time when we are supposed to come together as a country and reflect on an awful history that we have here, a history that is full of our own structural and institutionalised racism and violence. And to have this happen at this moment is not lost on us. Mm -hmm. And we are white women and we want to stand in solidarity and show our support, but we also recognise the voices of black women and black men and black trans folk who need to be heard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what else to say except that in Australia, you know, over 400 Aboriginal people have died in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission and that's not good enough. Our Indigenous population are incarcerated at rates that are shocking and appalling And Australia needs to reckon with our own history of this kind of violence. Mm. Yeah. And so obviously while we do stand in solidarity with what's happening in the US, it does give us pause, especially as we've said at this time of reconciliation in Australia, Reconciliation Week gives us pause to reflect on our our own history. Mm. And so, of course, to all of our listeners out there, we know that you'll be obviously as outraged and upset and as moved as we are by what's been happening recently. So we hope that everyone's taking as good care of themselves as mm. they possibly can 
because, you know, coupled with what's been happening in the world um, in terms of the coronavirus recently mm. as well, it just does feel like a difficult time. <laughs> it feels like a fucking difficult time to be alive, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> so although where we're going in this week's episode is not in any way really thematically linked to what we've just been talking mm-hmm. about, our listeners will know that, you know, clearly this is something we've touched on in the past with um, many different figures that we've looked at and um, it is something that's going to be coming up in it the will. very near future. It will, yeah. I yep, think definitely. even with perhaps with your figure that you've already yeah. picked for the next episode. Yeah, so. that's right. We will actually touch on a lot of these issues in our next episode. So that's actually probably going to be a really hard one. But this week we're going to go somewhere lighter. Maybe. Well, maybe. Not really. But <laughs> maybe. Different. 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 It's at least not going to be grounded in the horror of the world as we know it in this current political moment. Perhaps. No. Perhaps. No. But of course, as <laughs> to always. To an extent. <laughs> to an extent. But of course, as always, there are going to be parallels that we are going to be able yeah. to draw from our historical figure and our current world climate. Yeah. Maybe we should just keep doing pirates. We should just keep doing pirates and <laughs> For then. forever. You know, we yeah. don't have to think about the real world. No, I think it's probably important that we do think about the real world um, and try not to stick our heads in the sand too, too much. (laughs) But I will also say from the outset, look, we're going to get to some fun times. Don't get me wrong. But I also want to say from the outset that today's episode is also going to take us down a path that's going to sort of necessitate a bit of a consideration of disordered eating. So Mm. please also judge for yourself whether or not that's something that you want to stay on board for today. But The world that we're going into, the realm that we're going into is also very, very close to where we were last episode. Which is somewhere we haven't really been very much. So I'm going to forgive the fact that these overlap in time a little bit or are close to each other in time. Well, no, they pretty much are the same period of history. (laughs) Exactly. We are going back to the 14th century. Really? Really? Wow. We are. There you go. We are going all the way back to the 1300s, which is pretty much exactly where we were last episode. But this time we're not going to be in France. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in Italy. Italy. So oh, we're just jumping across <laughs> a little bit. That's right. Heading down the Mediterranean Sea. That's right. So we're shaking things up just a little tiny bit in terms of geography. And now, obviously, uh, listeners out there already know who we're talking about because, as usual, it's, it's <laughs> on the name of the episode. But it is Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena. Who is From that a- famous Tuscan city of San Gimignano, right? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that's why they called her Catherine of Siena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Precisely. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, that was a joke, obviously. It was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, Catherine of Siena is clearly from Siena, <laughs> which is in beautiful Tuscany. But you may very well from the outset sort of ask why we would put a saint on a show called Deviant Women. Why um, would you not? Oh my, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Alicia, I, do you know well, your history think, of saints? Precisely. I think, to, <laughs> I, th- I think to Lauren and I that's a very logical <laughs> leap to take. It's not even uh-huh. a leap. It's a very logical place to yeah. go. But, you know, I think for a lot of people you would think that, you know, saints are about as far away from deviancy as you can get. <laughs> and no. <laughs> no, no. But obviously as well this is more about looking at, you know, how really the role that women took in the religious practices of the day and of their time you know how they were able to find ways to play roles mm-hmm. in what what was you know and what still is a very 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 patriarchal structure masculine world 
Because Catherine was a mystic, wasn't she? She was a mystic. And mystics are interesting because they are allowed a particular kind of communion with the divine that is otherwise not allowed to women. Precisely, yes. And we are going to get very much into that as well. So I think that Lauren and I are very happy to say that saints can fit very neatly into the world of deviant very women. Much so not all of them, but yeah, very not, much. Perhaps many not all of them. them. Many, many, yeah. many, many. <laughs> yeah. But yes, there are very specific ways that femininity sort of plays into this world of the church. So a lot of what we know about Catherine comes from sources that were written very soon after her death and, you know, during her life as well. And so a lot of what we're talking about today is another one of our favourite things, our mm. favourite words, which is hagiography. We love it. We love, love it. that word too. Just the word hagiography. So it sounds good, doesn't it? It does. Such an, yeah, it's a good tasting word. Mm. And I think we've mentioned it before. It's basically it's the biography of a saint essentially yeah. is what we're talking about. But what it means is that a lot of what was written about her was written with a purpose, you know, mm-hmm. really to promote her for canonization. And even though we know that she was a real woman who really existed, many of the details about her religious and spiritual life will sort of take with a grain of salt. You know, they've been of recorded in, in a specific way to sort of remember her or to promote her in a specific kind of way as well. Yeah. So we're going to set our scene in Siena, as we've said, Tuscany. I'm actually trying to remember if I saw her in, I think she's in the cathedral in Siena. She's all part of her is, right? She is. Don't she's got a relic. Don't ruin the story. Right, I won't, I won't Hold on to it. it. I'm just Hold trying to remember to if I've seen I think I would remember Did if I had there? seen this relic. I, fe- I feel like this is not a relic you would have forgotten. No, I think I've only been out the front of the cathedral. Okay. And I yeah. should have gone inside because this is quite a relic, but I will let you tell the story. Yeah. All right. We'll get to the relic. <laughs> we will get to the relic. I'm sorry. I'm just like we'll I don't, I'm obsessed with relics. <laughs> like not obsessed with. I think they're very interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, we are going to talk a little bit about relics today, obviously. So maybe you would like to share with us, Lauren. Mm. Tell us what a relic is. Now? Yeah, that can be your job. Right now? Because I know or- you're – yeah, yeah, I know you're excited <laughs> about relics. You just tell us tell us what a relic well, is right now. I mean, now. very basically, like a relic is a preserved body part of a saint. Many of them are considered to be uncorrupted, which means that they haven't decomposed or decayed, although, of course, if you see them in real life, you can see that they have. And yeah. they're kept in – you know, these elaborate ornate fixtures, whether that be a candelabra or whether that be some sort of statue or effigy and are used as pieces of devotion and worship in churches. And, you know, in Catholic churches across the world, you can find relics and they are extraordinary to see because they're this weird, for me as an outsider to this, you know, (laughs) they're like this weird congruence of utter devotion and this real morbidness yeah. <laughs> this is like intense gothic morbidity that yeah. I just and I find them so intensely yeah. fascinating for that reason yeah they are look they are really wonderfully interesting things so we will come back to talking about them but yes mm. thank you very much that has set up she's, very she's nicely. got a very famous one she does my point yeah yeah <laughs> and that set us up very nicely to keep in the back of our minds what we mean when we're talking about relics in today's episode so As I said, we're going to Tuscany and while we might think of Tuscany, you know, as a beautiful, lovely holiday spot. Wine, rolling vineyards. Yeah. But rather than sort of thinking of it as this 
you know, beautiful picturesque kind of place where you might go to drink wine and, and stay in villas. Mm-hmm. We're going to the 14th century. Yeah, and medieval so Siena. It was medieval, medieval Tuscany. Tuscany. Yeah. yeah, different thing altogether. Yeah. So we're talking economic depression, which is kind of similar, I suppose, in the wake well, of the coronavirus. Oh. Yeah. <sighs> we're supposed to be lifting ourselves out <laughs> sorry, of the worries sorry, of today. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but this was because of mainly sort of because of ongoing tensions and conflicts between many of the different Italian city-states at the time. Mm. So we can imagine, you know, rioting, poverty and also not least, sorry, the Black Death. Oh, um, shit, yeah, <laughs> fuck, it is totally sorry. Black Death time. It's it is. peak. Black Death time. I'm sorry. And we talked about the Black Death a little bit in our last episode as well. (laughs) So the Black Death actually sort of really exploded in this part of the world in the year of Catherine's birth. Oh, fantastic. Which was 1347. Well, she obviously survived it. She did. She did. So she was born right into Mm. this kind of world of poverty, of rioting, of economic unrest, of plague. Mm. And so, you know, much like today, what a time to be alive (laughs) for our Catherine. What a wonderful time. But so she was born Catherine D. Benincasa and her father was a tradesman in cloth dyeing and her mother was possibly the daughter of a local poet but one thing about her mother that i can tell you for sure is that her mother was a fucking trooper because guess how many siblings god i don't want to know has she's got something horrendous like 17 siblings or something 20 fucking (gasps) five no go fuck yourself that's not a correct number that's not that's not five that's not a thing that a human person can do is it is that a thing a human person can do apparently there were 25 of them (gasps) She's one of 25? Yes, yes, exactly. So she had 24 siblings. She's the 25th. Whoa. They have to be multiples. They can't have all survived. Well, actually, only one of them died in infancy. What? Yeah, I know, apparently. Now, I thought this as well. I was like, oh, come on, seriously. I mean, she would have had to be pregnant for pretty much her entire life. Her entire life. She would have started in her teens and kept going to her 40s, basically. But I looked this up in the Guinness World Book of Records because I was interested to know. Oh, no. What's the number? (laughs) So the greatest, and we'll take this with a grain of salt as well, the greatest officially recorded number of children born to one mother, according to the Guinness Book of Records. I'm already frowning. Was in Russia in the 1700s. So, Uh again, we can't be sure of the validity of this. But apparently... Apparently, it was 69. That's no, no. How? How? <laughs> it says, and the Guinness World Book of Records tells us that's because in 27 confinements, so 27 different pregnancies, pregnancies. she gave birth to 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. That's insane. <laughs> it is. How, how could you survive that? How could that be? <laughs> Well, How could that be? After she, a while, they just start dropping out of you. Well, it's like you? that scene in Monty Python. <laughs> exactly. You're just the, plowing the, the field. They just fall out. They just fall surely. out. Surely. Oh, my God. You probably don't I even realise you're I pregnant. Hope that's not real because, oh, God. Well, I mean, it's technically not impossible for her to have some kind of genetic disposition to yeah. having multiple births. It's true. It's true. It's true. But, but anyway, it's totally unrelated to today's story. But fascinating and horrifying so there <laughs> so we go horrifying so <laughs> horrifying imagine spending your entire life pregnant no <laughs> anyway so that's 
So Catherine's got a lot of siblings. All right, yeah. she's got a lot of brothers, a lot of brothers and sisters. Okay, so she really, she's her lifetime quest is just to be noticed, <laughs> to stand out from <laughs> Have this litter of yeah. fucking dozen, two dozen children. Yeah, two Someone, dozen. Please notice me. Someone, please pay yeah. attention to me. But she was apparently quite a bright and happy child. And so growing up in this world, she saw around her on the streets of Siena the very devout nature of the Dominican nuns who were here at the time. And she, even from a very young age, was impressed with this. And she was quite a religious child to begin with. So without getting sort of too caught up in the specifics of religious orders, it is important to know who the Dominicans were mm. because this is where she's going to go. So the Dominicans are what's known as a sort of a medicant order and they're an offshoot of Christianity, obviously, yeah. and they were slash are dedicated to lives of poverty, yeah. including travelling around, living in poorer areas to preach and to minister the word of God, especially to the poor. So that's why we often see that the ministries heading out at this period of time into the quote-unquote new world, uh, either Dominican or Franciscans yeah. because this was what these it. orders were yeah. all about. Yeah, they, loved they were devoted it. to they this. They loved it, that poverty, that sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. And so this is going to have a huge impact on the religious life of our Catherine. So anyway, don't hate me for that simplistic explanation of Dominican <laughs> anybody out there of course these ideas are far more complex yeah uh, but we always, don't grain of we salt. don't have time that's right we don't have time we only have time for the basic versions so even as sort of as young as six and seven is when she has her first vision really? right so the records say perhaps six perhaps seven this is the first vision and this that is a she vision has. of god or a vision of an angel so this is a vision of Jesus. Ooh. So she's walking Ooh, home. Special. Yeah, I know. So she's walking home with her brother when Jesus appears to her. And apparently he appears either sort of sitting on a throne surrounded by bishops or he appears dressed in the robes of a bishop himself, depending on the version that you hear. And so she sort of stops here and stands in the road enraptured in this vision and this presence of Jesus until her brother sort of like grabs her mm. and shakes her out of it. Catherine, like, what, what are you looking at? What Come the hell's on. wrong with you? Dinner. And, but she, exactly, let's go. I don't know we why you talk like that. got to beat up 23 other siblings <laughs> otherwise you miss out on some food. <laughs> Nothing left to eat. And this was the start for her yeah. of her religious devotion. So she decides even now that she wants to devote her life to Jesus and to religious contemplation. And did Jesus tell her anything particularly at this point? She just no. saw him? Like he didn't no. have any great message for her or anything? It was No, it was simply a vision of Jesus yeah. there and his presence. She yeah. felt his presence. So he didn't have a message for her. He wasn't instructing her at this point. But it moves her enough to know that this is what she wants mm. to do. She This is what she wants to commit herself to. This is, of course, going to be pretty annoying for her parents who would much prefer that she marry off into another family but she decides you know this is not what she's going to do she's going to remain a virgin and she's going to serve only God and so her parents are like mm, are you really sure you're very young I think maybe we'll just try and like set up a betrothal for you anyway <laughs> interesting because yeah there's so many children so surely just one going off to the convent would be fine normally hey, they're getting rid of all of the extras that way all 25 know? children are important in this story. Okay. <laughs> all worth as much as this. Did they have enough money for that many dowries? That's my question. Uh, well, maybe they had 
Yeah, I don't know. Although you've got to pay a dowry to the church anyway, actually. Look, there's a lot of money changing hands. Okay. But they would have much preferred that this is the life that she Mm -hmm. followed. But instead she decides, no, no, she's going to cut her hair. She's She's rebelling and she's going to join the fucking church. That's right. So she cuts her hair off because, you know, that's (gasps) how you decrease the likelihood of attracting a suitor. You You cut your hair off. No, but really. But genuinely. Really. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like not even a joke. That's a very big statement. It is a huge statement. Of course, this this infuriated her family, this enraged her parents, but she was 100% committed to her life of holiness and piety and this is what she wanted to pursue. So even now as a young child, she decides that she wants to retreat to sort of prayer and silent contemplation. And what really apparently compelled her to sort of these extremes was that one of her older sister's died Mm. in childbirth at around about her 15th birthday and this really made a huge impression on her and obviously that sort of young happy child that she was sort of described as being became much more introverted and Mm. much more reflective and had you know firsthand experienced losing somebody that she cared about very very deeply and this sent her much quicker and much more deeply into that silent contemplation and she sort of sets herself up a cell that she wants to spend her time in and it's I've heard it sort of described basically as like a small cupboard under the Mm. stairs in the family home that she would lock herself away in a very small tiny little space where there was basically just enough room for her to sort of kneel and pray it's crazy do you know what some of these women used to do to themselves when they would go like into we all now have experience with isolation but let me tell you that this is fucking next level isolation they would literally lock themselves in tiny rooms with yeah like you said sometimes not even enough space to stand yeah and they would yeah. kneel for yeah. sometimes not even just days on end sometimes this would be months months if not years yeah on end yeah crazy absolutely with just their own thoughts oh my god and so this is basically what she does she shuts herself away in here And she also, in her very early teens, she decides that she's also going to take on this vow of silence. And there's a whole three-year period of her life here as an early teenage girl where she never speaks except for in confession. So What could she she possibly have to confess? (laughs) Precisely. Well, this was it though, Lauren, because I suppose even as a young girl, she continued to have visions, Mm. but some of these visions included temptations Mm. and demonic Mm -hmm. visions. Mm -hmm. So this is probably what she thought she had to confess. She's being tested. She's being tested. Exactly. Absolutely. In order to sort of combat those temptations, of course, you need that penance, that punishment to Mm. be stronger and stronger and stronger to show more and more deeply your devotion to Christ. Because, of course, Christ suffered on the cross and the more you suffer, the closer you are to God. And the other thing I think that we need to remember as well, like we live in a world where we are so overwhelmed with information and distractions and things to do and things yes. to remember and to think mm-hmm. about. And like our lives are so much faster and busier than they were back then. Like this would have been her literal entire life. She yeah. would have had nothing else that would have distracted her from this mission. Like this is her sole singular purpose and focus. Yep. And yeah. when you're so focused on something like that, you can 
absolutely enter into that state of pure zealousness and obsession. Yeah. Because there's nothing else going on. Yeah, precisely. And so this, you know, her family did try to kind of drag her out of this at times and try to put her to work doing things like just, you know, menial tasks around Mm. the home, you know, like basically just trying to drag her out of this world. But she... And this is, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show as well, this also led to her fasting and Mm. starving. And, of course, you know, this is another way of penance is eating hardly anything. So Mm. at this point of time she would only accept bread and water and occasionally raw vegetables. And so she took this kind of starvation as another level of penance. And we'll talk about that a little bit more because that does play uh, more of a role in her life as we go along. And it's an issue that we'll Mm. talk about more in depth as we sort of come to it. But for now, you know, her family are trying to kind of break her out of this and her mother, you know, to her mother's credit, tried to take her to all of these different kinds of bathing mm. cures and right. you know, her mother rather Sort as a sing- cure. So her mother didn't think, "Oh my goodness, my daughter is in communion with Christ yeah. and yeah. should devote herself to the Lord, which other parents in this situation Precisely. may have. Yeah, yeah. And instead is like, Catherine, come on, you're being yeah. a fucking nut bar. Let's yeah. go to the bath and we'll have a spa day and we'll get you sorted. Yeah, which is really interesting because, like you say, a lot of families would be like, oh, our child's holy. Yes. Hooray. What we have honor. a child. Yeah. What an honor. She's been touched by God. Yeah, she's our ticket to heaven, which yeah, is what everybody but- wanted. Everybody just wanted their ticket to heaven. But her mother was genuinely concerned for her life and concerned for the way that she was living. But unfortunately, there was nothing that she or anyone else could do to break Catherine's devotion to the cause. And Catherine even took at a very young age as a teenager to flagellating herself as well, even as a teenager. So apparently this was something that she and many of her playmates used to do in secret. They would flagellate. Yes, they would Would flagellate. Flagellate them. Yes. How is that? As Um, as a basically. (laughs) Sorry, I was like, there's so many readings of this. I know. (laughs) It's so weird. When I read that, I was like, what on earth? But sort of suggesting that, you know, this game of flagellation, this game of like religious piety was a game, that it was childish. Childish playfulness. Which in, in one way, so that's like an emulation of, because play is about children learning how to be adults, right? It's about yeah. like copying what yeah. they see in repeating the world, repeating, behaviors, like practicing yeah. through fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, I don't know, is it just me or do you wonder if there's a little bit of playful early eroticism, eroticism at work here? Well, this is an interesting thing as well, right? Because this is something I think about when we come to a vision that would come to Mm. our Catherine very soon in her life, right? Because, like, it's that level of devotion. It's that singular obsession and passion directed at something very specific while you are flagellating yourself. And let's not minx words about that. That is erotic. 
So it's, <laughs> <And> candy. <laughs> so it's kind of a bit of that question of like, is Jesus the ultimate sort of boy yes. band in a way? Oh my god! Right? Absolutely. Like 100%. very much so. And that's not to trivialize or make fun of it, but it does feed back into a lot of what. Well, we've no, touched but before. it plays into that idea of devotion and obsession yes. and like listomania yep. or Beatlemania or yep. whatever. Precisely. Exactly. So I want to tell you about this vision that that she had that I think feeds into what you were just talking about there. So finally when she was 16, to her great satisfaction, she was finally allowed to join the Dominican nuns who administered on the streets because obviously her parents had realised that there was just no way they were breaking her mm. out of this. This is what she wanted to do and they could not stop her. But she cut a very different figure to the other women in this order of Dominican nuns because they were mostly older women and they mm-hmm. were widows, mostly widows. Mm-hmm. A young unmarried virgin she was a total anomaly, right? And even though she had joined these women, she didn't go to convent. She didn't go to the nunnery. Right. Yeah, she remained at home because she still much preferred her silent life of contemplation in her cell to interacting with the other nuns and yeah, interacting right. with people on the streets. Remaining in her cell, she continues to have these influential visions. And this is the vision that I was talking about that I mm-hmm. want to unpack because okay, I think it let's ties do it. Let's back dive in. This, right? Oh, unpacking a vision. So it was Shove Tuesday of 1367 and it was the night of the carnival. So there's parades oh, yes. and celebrations They're in the streets. eating so many pancakes. They're drinking Oh, my wine. God. I had pancakes for breakfast this morning. <laughs> It wasn't even sure if Tuesday. But she's locked away in her cupboard, of course, refraining from any kind of celebration. It's not her bag. And she's locked away in the cupboard and here she receives another vision. And this vision is of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. They appear to her along with King David, along with John the Evangelist, along with St. Paul, St. Dominic. And King David is playing a harp and to the accompaniment. As you do. That's what he does. It's what he did. It is. It's what, yeah, that's right. Of course. (laughs) But to the accompaniment of this heavenly music, Jesus places a ring of betrothal upon Catherine's finger. So now she's married to Jesus. And of course, this only helped to cement that sense of devotion. Uh And apparently, as we're saying relics, apparently the ring itself was made from the foreskin of the baby Jesus. Oh, fuck. No, I've heard of this. Because this was a super popular relic of the time. Yes. Yes. There was so many people who were like, Claiming get your foreskin. foreskin of get, get your foreskin of the baby Jesus. <laughs> But honestly, people bought this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was huge money to be made in it. And so in her vision, this is the ring she receives, is made out of the foreskin of the baby Jesus. That is. And I mean. so many levels. Sorry, She's only, she's still a very young woman at this stage, right? She's only just moving. Well, this is kind of moving now towards the end of her teens, right? This is moving into her early 20s now. She's about 19 or 20 when this occurs. But it's still very much tied up to, as we were saying, that very kind of romantic sense and romantic symbolism. So even if it's not an erotic symbolism, it is a romantic Mm. one, right? And it's Mm. a physical one. And for a young woman, 
what is that sense of romance that is part of this yeah, devotion? Absolutely. As we've said, you know, it's more than just necessarily this sense of religiousness. It's also this sense of having a relationship. Yeah. And it's a relationship that you have directly to this individual yeah. that no one else has. And Jesus as well, he is the epitome of the perfect man, isn't he? Like Precisely. It, nobody can ever come close to him as a symbol of a Perfection. man, right? Like, yeah. yeah. He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect lover. He's the perfect, you know, she can't ever do better than that in life. And, again, that's the same reason why boy bands are so famous. So, you know, like it's that comes back to that same idea of listomania or beatomania is yep. that they are the yep. projection of desire, projection yes, of very right. safe, safe Mm -hmm. desires this perfection of manhood that can't be corrupted because you never know that person in real life so they can't destroy themselves for you and they can't actually threaten you they can't really threaten your virginity they can't really threaten your chastity they cannot physically very safe yeah so as i said before i mean that's not to sort of like trivialize or it's not Mm. to take away the religious sense of it but it is very much as well just trying to think about the psychology of a young woman absolutely who is driven to such extremes for her love of christ be real a young woman who has a mother who gave birth to 25 children and <laughs> yes. who watched her sister. No wonder sister she wants to be a fucking virgin. Who watched her sister die in childbirth. Yeah. That's traumatizing. Yep. Yeah. I'd want to be a virgin too for the <laughs> yes. rest of my life. If that was the example I had yeah. seen around me, for sure. So I think this is why we think that saints are such interesting characters to look at. Well, not characters, people, such interesting people to look at is because it is more than just this sort of like religious devotion or spiritual holiness that is is. put on them. It's there's so much more because they were real people as well, you know. And so this is the hugely influential vision that she has. And it's also hard to say, I don't want to speculate on whether visions are real or not or that sort of thing. Mm. But at the same time as well, someone who starves himself a lot, locks himself away in a cupboard. I mean, these visions, whether they were hallucinations or whether they were genuine visitations from Jesus or the spirits, I mean, you can still see how that, there's you can so still see how that plays going out. on that's conducive to this. And it's the same stuff that we've talked about before when we've talked about all these teenage girls who become mediums and, you know, these young girls who were accused of witchcraft. It's the same confluence of repressed desire, having a repressed voice and no agency in your life, coupled with usually deprivation of some mm, kind, in yes, this case exactly. deprivation of food and yep. fucking social interaction and like yep. ability to engage in the world, locking herself yep. away all of the time and creating yep. this echo chamber, this intensified like think about that little cupboard under the stairs. Everything is that's your whole world. Of course everything yeah. is gonna be huge in that space especially if you're not eating anything yeah yeah so of course this vision is hugely influential on Mm. her and it's also said that she continued to be able to see this ring on her finger for the rest of her life although of course no one else could it was still visible to her (laughs) it's a metaphorical ring yeah, it's a metaphorical ring, but she can actually see it. So it's a literal <laughs> ring to her. Let's not get the too far into that it. transcends time and space. Go <laughs> it's on. It's true. So this experience actually sort of 
is the catapult for her to emerge more and more into the streets to do the work of the Dominican nuns and to remove herself more from that sort of isolation that she's been in and to commit herself more to the work of administering to the poor Mm -hmm. and the needy and to actually go out into the world to do this work. And this is when she begins to gather a following as well. And I think part of this is because she would have been so different to Mm. the other nuns, you know. She wouldn't have been the kind of person that these people were used to seeing on the streets doing this kind of work because she was an anomaly Mm. because of her age and because she was and she um, would have been strange even then like she would have been seen as somebody who really walks the walk yeah yeah so she gathered this group of disciples around her or well i mean she didn't gather gathered themselves they gathered themselves and they were moved by her her piety and by her visions of jesus which she did report you know and her disciples begin to call her mama at this point as well yeah yeah so she takes on this name and this is where she really starts to work in a public sphere and take on a public role so the church begins to hear about this strange girl in siena a woman, I should say, young woman by this stage because she's, she's into her early 20s now. And they start to hear about this gathering of followers and, you know, she's causing a bit of a stir. So they send out a Dominican master general named Raymond of Capua to sort of check out this strange mm. woman. Now, he's assigned to be, in inverted commas, assigned to be her spiritual advisor and confessor, but he's pretty much a spy for the church, obviously. Right, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, just go check this woman out. But... Over the next six years that he spends with Catherine, he too comes to believe very heavily in her holiness. Right. And it's actually his biography of her after her death that contributes in large part to her broader sort of hagiography mm-hmm. and to her canonization as well. So while he was living in Siena, he unfortunately contracted the plague. Mm. So amazingly, he recovers. And he credits his recovery to the fact that in his, yeah, in his darkest hour when he thought he was about to die, lying in his deathbed, (gasps) Catherine came and sat by his bedside and began praying for him. And she remained there praying for him until he began to turn the corner, coming back from the brink of death. And he described this as a miraculous recovery, Mm -hmm. which was all thanks to having Catherine pray by his bedside. This was what saved him Mm. from the Black Death. So he becomes one of her biggest champions and believes wholeheartedly in her holiness. And she's got a few crusades that she is going to lead that she feels very, very strongly about, right? Mm -hmm. And one of these big crusades is that she's all about the return of the Pope to Rome. So... Oh, right, yeah. Exactly. I know. So this. what what has happened in this period of time in about the early 1300s and right through into the 1370s, the Pope moved the official office mm. from Rome to Avignon in France. Mm-hmm. And this was for a few reasons, one being that French King Philippe IV, who was a few Philips before the one that we had in the last episode, yep. he was kind of responsible for the prior Pope's death. And then he sort of forced a French pope in to yeah, be elected, yeah, yeah. you yep. know, as you do. Yeah, as you do. You've got to have that influence. Yeah. And then Pope Clement, who's the new pope, he, he didn't like, really want mm, – No. Nah. I don't want to go to Rome. Yeah. Nah. He didn't want to go to Rome. 
And, of course, because all the Italian city-states were very much at war with each other, you know, that it just didn't seem like the right idea. So they decided just to move it to Avignon. And that, of course, was great for the French because they had heaps of influence over the yeah. church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the popes just kept getting richer and richer <laughs> because I don't know if anybody knows this, but the Catholic Church has a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah. <laughs> And at the time, you know, you'd go to Avignon and you would pay to have your sins absolved. Yes. And there was a roaring trade in relics. Oh, yeah. So there was so much money to be made in the Catholic Church. Yeah. So much Just money. In that, in that ability to help people get into heaven. How That's much right. money can you pay for me to have a chat with Jesus on your behalf? Okay, great. That's right. Yeah, sweet. There you go. And in I am, you know, through the eye of a needle. Yeah. Anyway. But so Catherine really strongly believed that this was wrong and that Mm. the Pope needed to return to Rome and she saw Rome as the holy and rightful place for the Pope and this became one of her major causes. There were about four popes who resided in Avignon throughout her lifetime which is, you know, it's interesting to think because now I think we think of popes as people who just stick around for a really, really long time, you know, like. Yeah. We just get one pope and he's there for forever until he dies. And these popes were there until they died, but everybody just died at a much younger age then. Mm-hmm. So they just went <laughs> they through popes. They faster. They moved through them. <laughs> they just went through popes much quicker. And also one anti-pope as well was there during the time. Well, I was going to say, is this the same time as the two popes? Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So like an anti-pope is basically when someone that, else claims to be the pope. Yeah. There was that whole thing for a while there. <laughs> two popes. <laughs> yeah. Two popes. And so this was also all happening around about this time. So she was in contact with most of these popes throughout her life, writing letters to them. So there's Pope Clement, Pope Innocent, Pope Urban, Pope Gregory, and then another Clement was the anti-pope as well. So it just sounds so evil, the anti-pope. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it's so evil. So she basically dedicated herself to imploring these different popes to follow the guidance of God, do what was right and come back to Rome. So as she grew older, she also grew brasher in her demands (laughs) and more familiar with how she addressed these otherwise sort of totally untouchable men. So she's just like writing off very friendly letters like, dude, Clement, come on, you know you want to come back. Precisely because, come on, on. because by the time she's corresponding with Pope Gregory the 11th, she was calling him Babbo was like the the nickname she had for him, like this pet, this pet name she had for the Pope. And she was writing letters to him that started with the Italian equivalent of like, dearest daddy, come like, yes, I know. (laughs) And then like. Classic. And then, like, admonishing him for not doing his job properly. She'd say (laughs) things like, you know, if you're not going to do what's right, if you're not going to use your heavenly power that God has invested in you to do the right thing, then you should just resign. Like, just (laughs) resign. Like, if you can't do it, what good are you? Like, this was how brash she became. (laughs) She was totally outspoken. But then she would temper this kind of brashness at the same time by saying things like, oh, forgive me, you know, it's only because I'm so passionately compelled by the word of God because she also knew her place, you know, and she knew the danger of overstepping the mark without showing any kind of feminine remorse for it. So 
take it down a little notch, just a, t- yeah. just a teeny notch. Like show That's you right. I'm powerful and I have a voice and I'm not afraid to use it, but I totally defer to you and I respect you, I guess. Uh, sorry, daddy. If that's going to stop me from being burnt at the stake. Yes. So as her following grew, she began to receive letters from all types of people from all walks of life seeking her counsel and her guidance and she was called on to advise nobility, even kings and queens and she became much more this symbol of a direct connection that people might have to Jesus. Yeah, because she married him. Yeah, she she was wearing his foreskin wedding ring. Of course. You know? I didn't even get – I got one made out of actual jewellery, you Alicia, know. are you here to tell us that you're not wearing Josh's foreskin on your finger right <laughs> no. now? That's are crazy. You, Brendan didn't make you a <laughs> ring out of his foreskin, did he? Alas, not yet. But we're also okay. not married yet, so there's still time. Oh, that's right. Maybe on the day. Yeah. The, yeah. He'll present. My God. <laughs> anyway. He's going to listen. He's going to edit this and just be like, oh. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> so – Her writings would likely have been sort of dictated to her followers to write down as it was probably highly likely that even though she could read, she might not have been able to Mm. write. This is a little bit up for debate though as well. You know, some scholars believe that she did write her own work and that this idea of her illiteracy was actually sort of perpetuated by Raymond of Capua, if we remember him, Mm -hmm. her advisor, Mm -hmm. later down the track. But regardless of how it was written down, her works went on to include her letters, of which there are nearly 400. Really? Yeah, which included the letters she wrote to the various popes. And they still exist? Yeah, there are copies of of many of these still in existence. Also included letters that she wrote to kings and queens as well as to, you know, sort of general lay people of the populace. It also included the dialogue, which was written later in her life, in which Catherine sort of dictated basically like a question question and answer like an exchange between herself and God Mm. about all sorts of issues relating to faith and to humanity and then there were also her prayers which she didn't dictate or write herself but which her disciples wrote down as she repeated them as they themselves learnt her prayers Mm. so a lot of her writing has been preserved and this is what ended up with her being given the title of Doctor of the Church. Now, a Doctor of the Church is a title who's given to those, primarily saints, whose writings have contributed to the theology and the doctrine of the church. So this is a doctor in the way that we mean it in like an academic context. Yeah. She's basically like a saint with a PhD. Yes. That's pretty much (laughs) what it means. Yeah. She contributed original knowledge to the church. Yeah, precisely. And so it was obviously very posthumously that she was given Mm -hmm. this title. It wasn't until 1970. Oh. And, yeah, I know. And there are about 36, I think, saints with PhDs. Uh I like to just call them PhDs. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's Let's do do it. it. (laughs) And of those since 1970, four have been women. Oh, fuck off. So just four. Do you know who the other ones are? Um, I think one of them is Hildegard of Bingham. I was, yeah, because that's the only other one I could think of. I was like, surely Hildegard's in there. I think there's a Therese and another one whose name I can't remember. That's okay. But there are four of them. Yeah. Yeah, so she was posthumously given this PhD for all of these writings that she did that contributed to this sort of, yeah, doctrine and theology around the Mm. church and Catholicism. Now, 
part of the reason why her writings were of such interest and that kings and queens and popes would listen to her were that stories of miracles, of course, began to rise up around Mm, her. As they do. As they do. And as we know, you don't really get to be a saint unless you have have some miracles. You got to do a miracle. You You got (laughs) to. You do. It's very necessary if you want to be a saint. You don't so, have to be alive when you do it, though. So that's no, no, no. That's you can be useful. well dead. That's you very can be useful. Well dead. Yeah. That There's is hope for all of us, really. <laughs> any of us could be a saint. Yeah. At any time in the future. So her disciples began to report that they had witnessed her levitating during prayer, and one priest reported that when performing the Holy Communion, the wafer flew out of his hand <laughs> straight into Catherine's mouth. Whoa. <laughs> That's Which kind of would freaky. be creepy. Yeah. I know. That's much more exorcist than that's anything else. That's a seance. That's a seance trick. That's yeah. A se- yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty creepy. She also experienced stigmata, which mm-hmm. is, of course, mm-hmm. you know, bleeding on the hands I and feet. I would expect nothing in, less, of, of course. course. In the repetition of the wounds of Jesus being nailed to the cross. And so all of these miracles began to add to her fame and her following. She continued, of course, to practice her self-denial, her flagellations, and she continued to work with the poor, administering to, you know, of course, the many, many people who were overcome with the plague and, of course, you know, various other diseases of the time. Leprosy, of course, was a huge one. And apparently to overcome her disgust at the sores (laughs) of one of her patients Uh she was attending to, she decided to drink a bowl of his pus. Oh, in oh. order to force herself to overcome oh. her revulsion. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just having a little moment <laughs> of a gag reflex <laughs> happening yeah. in my throat. That's it's, uh, something yeah. to do, isn't it? Gee, that is it a is. thing to do. It is. Just being like, what? what? Look, I find this disgusting <laughs> and I feel like that's not the empathetic response to have. How can I have more empathy for this man and I get will. over it? I will drink your pus. Oh, God. Well, look, maybe she was testing out early vaccination methods. Maybe she was just like, okay, well, if I don't want to end up with this disease, I need to inoculate myself by having just a small amount of it and then my body will build the necessary antibodies to be able to fight it off in the future. So maybe she's just a proto-pro-vaccination person. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Or maybe... It's just gross and (laughs) – but (laughs) – this is going to sound a bit bad – but other than drinking the occasional bit of pus from a patient, she also continued to fast. Oh, no. Uh, Yes, refusing to eat and drink Mm. for massively extended periods and sometimes receiving the sacrament would be the only thing that she'd ingest, Um, the only food or drink that she would ingest would be that – also common that mm-hmm. and again it's particularly with young women these young ascetics they would deny themselves all food but for the sacrament yeah yeah and she was also said to have a method of putting sticks down her throat to make herself throw up oh no so this is something that's worth thinking about more deeply than just in terms of accepting it as an act of piety, right? 
Because, I mean, so much of what we know about young women and disordered eating mm. and, you know, keep in mind for Catherine, these are habits she developed when she was... As a teenager. Li- yeah, literally a child mm-hmm. when she developed these mm-hmm. habits. So much of what we know about disordered eating is that so much of it is tied up with that sense of bodily autonomy, yeah. right, and control. And women like Catherine had such very little say in mm-hmm. what they could do with their bodies. And so in a way, starving herself was a way of claiming some control Mm. over her body and now of course I'm putting a very modern psychology onto this but honestly you know this is still a part of disordered eating today and I do think that it's important to consider it in those terms right rather than just simply say oh this is a pious devout catholic who starves herself isn't that great no not really it's not really great yeah and I think it was, I'll put this in the show notes as well. One of the texts I've been looking at is Rudolf Bell's book. I mean, this book's from the 80s, but it's still a very interesting book. And it's called Holy Anorexia. And it is very much about exploring that link between the wow. fasting of these kinds of holy religious women and eating disorders of women in the modern era, wow. you know. He was, of course, looking at women in the in the 80s, you know, yeah. back then. But there are these parallels to draw, you know. And, of course... While through Catherine this is framed as devotion to the suffering of Christ, the effects of what's going to happen to her body are the same as yeah, starvation in any, yeah. in any other cause, you know. It doesn't matter if you're doing it out of devotion, it's still going to ravage your body in yeah. exactly the same way. Yeah. And starvation was a very feminine practice, religious yes. practice as well. It always has been. It always has been. Mm. And because, you know, men often practice more physical, I mean, starvation is physical, obviously, but more sort of in terms of self-punishment, things like flagellation mm-hmm. or, which of course she did as well, or celibacy, because, you know, that's mm-hmm. seen as a huge punishment for men, yeah. whereas celibacy is just what women are until men Expected decide. To. <laughs> yeah, yeah, until men decide you're not celibate. You are just celibate. That's your default position, right? So that's not really a punishment for women. They're not giving anything up. But for men, that's a punishment. So even religious suffering has these gendered divides. But it's even like, you know, a few episodes ago when we were talking about the suffragettes and the mm, hunger strikes, you know, that was a huge part of their movement. A hunger strike is a way for them to enact, you know, this same protest about Mm. using their bodies as protest in a way that – Again, because women have typically had so much less autonomy over themselves and over their bodies, of course, this is one of the few things that you can control, whether that be for protest or for piety or for any number of reasons. Mm. But, you know, the the scary thing about this, you know, there's so many scary things about this, obviously, but, you know, this also perpetuates that incredibly sort of damaging and dangerous idea that suffering and feminine power are like intertwined. Absolutely. And that women gain power through suffering. And then the the, the consequences of, like you said, the body being ravaged, something like the loss of your period. Like if you don't menstruate, instead of that being a sign of your body is in deep trauma and it is allocating all of its resources that it possibly can to staying alive Mm. instead that in the context of religion is seen as transcending the body yeah it's you're no longer because that's part of that abject humanity you know blood 
and mm-hmm. shit and piss are abject human bodily functions. And if you want to be religious and if you want to be pious, you have to transcend beyond mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. things. And so yeah. your body's natural way of trying desperately to protect itself yeah. is ironically seen as being a sign of your transcendence. Yeah, yeah. And this plays into something that I think it was Pope John Paul II, I think I'm pretty sure, who referred to this as sort of this idea of feminine genius, right, <laughs> or a specifically feminine way of imagining or connecting or responding to God, right. you know. This idea essentially that feminine genius comes back to women's bodies being in various ways, as we've discussed in the past, vessels for other beings, mm-hmm. right? And we talked about it especially in our episode on the possessions of Ladan. Mm. the idea, you know, women's bodies are open and animal and mm-hmm. primal and they are more receptive to receiving spirits. Now, in the possessions of Ladan, obviously that episode, that meant demonic spirits. And it's a super fine line for women of this era, of any fucking era really, to walk because this openness sort of means that rather than ignoring women and their visions and saying, oh, you know, she's just a crazy woman, the patriarchy literally couldn't ignore them. Their Mm -hmm. own conception of women as receiving vessels meant Mm -hmm. that they had to take very seriously any idea that a woman had received the spirit of Christ into her. Yes. You know, they can't ignore that because their own rules set, their own rules about (laughs) femininity set that up as something that they have to believe in. Yes. So... Of course, this fine line there also means that this could easily be believed, tip the other way. And there's a fine line between, you know, witchcraft and holiness. Absolutely. And with that kind of line, you know, don't forget Catherine of Siena, she was reported to have levitated during prayer, Yes, you know. (laughs) But a witch could just as easily fly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like at the same period, coming just a couple of decades after her, we have somebody like Joan of Arc, right? Mm, Who, mm. on the one hand, ticks many of the same boxes, is pious, is being led by God, has visions, is sainted for those same reasons. But she was burnt at the stake, not as a witch, but as a, you know, for treason. As a heretic, yeah. As a heretic, because all of these same things, the things that lead you to have visions who knows if those visions come from god or from satan yeah yep so women had to position themselves so carefully and this i think even if we can't prove that someone like catherine was consciously doing that at the time was consciously positioning herself with care i think this is why I mentioned the way that she would write her letters because I think that that does play into it Mm. she would say what she needed to say but then she would temper it in a way where it's like, oh, please forgive me. I am just a woman, but I'm receiving the word of God and I'm just doing God's bidding, right? I think she was smart enough. And again, you know, (laughs) we can't prove it. We can't prove it. It's me reading into the psychology Mm -hmm. of it. But I think that, you know, you would have been smart enough to know that you needed to position yourself in a certain way because an example that sort of supports this is that other women of the time, you know, someone like, for example, there was Marguerite Porit 
she came very shortly before Catherine and she wrote a book called A Mirror of Simple Souls and she was an extremely well-educated woman and it's been argued that sort of rather than positioning her philosophy of God and religion that she wrote down as ones that she'd received in visions and ones that had been told to her by God, she sort of just wrote it down like a man would write it down. Mm. Like, oh, these like these are some ideas I have about religion. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. What? You can't and do that? <laughs> exactly. And you know what? She couldn't because, and I mean, a lot of her ideas were out there, but as some scholars like Barbara Newman have argued, this is what directly contributed to her getting burnt at the mm. stake for heresy, mm. right? Yeah. Was the fact that she didn't necessarily play that game yes. of how do I position myself in this patriarchy. Because again, and we've talked about this when we've talked about women as being the vessels, is that at the same time when that spirit is speaking through you or you are relaying that information from the spirit, you can disassociate yourself from the responsibility of what that yeah. entity yep. is saying. You know, That's so right. again, that plays out in many different ways in witchcraft trials and in seances and in all kinds yep. of ways. And of course, with mystics as well, because yep. if a woman is saying something revelatory and important about the church and people agree with it, well, it can't be her words. She's just relaying the word of God. Or of Christ Basically. or of Mary yeah. or of the angel or whoever yeah. it is. But it doesn't yeah. belong to her because it yeah. can't because yeah. she's a woman. Yeah. Basically, she's getting that idea from the man in charge. Exactly. Which makes it okay because then you're basically – basically she's, she's just, just a vessel. Sec- she's just an in-between. Yeah. She's, a, yeah. she's, she's an intermediary. She, yeah. She's God's secretary yes. essentially, right? <laughs> yes. And that's okay. You're a woman so you're allowed you're to be a secretary. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All you're doing is just writing down what he's saying and bringing it back but to us. But don't have and an original ex- thought because that Precisely. would be heresy because then yeah. you're disagreeing with the word of God who is a man or the word of the yeah. church who is a, yeah. that is a patriarchal institution and you can't do that because you're a woman. So yeah, that's, that's not your place. You are a heretic. Yeah. So <laughs> as I've said, I'm in no position to claim that Catherine didn't actually receive visitations from Jesus, right? <laughs> or at the very least that she she didn't concretely believe that she did. I think she probably did believe that she did. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not trying to suggest that it was a scam yeah. or that she was, you know, going over and above in order to be believed. But for all intents and purposes, she was devout and pious mm. and as pious as any other saint saint you know you'd, you'd care to mention but her pious devotion to this kind of I think holy anorexia did lead to her untimely death sadly mm. unfortunately because by the time she was only 33 she was actually being petitioned by priests and popes and pope alike you know around her to stop fasting oh, and wow. start fucking eating really because it was yes because it was clear that it was ravaging her body she was no longer able to walk (sighs) all of that self-induced vomiting had started to destroy her and she basically towards the end she lost her ability to swallow entirely so even if she did want to accept food it soon became apparent that she couldn't she could no longer eat or drink basically And ultimately in 1380, this did lead to her death Mm. at only the age of 33. 33. Yeah. Now who else died at 33, Lauren? Christ. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that has any significance to the story, but (laughs) just thought I'd point it out. 
Yeah, he's supposed to have died at 33. Somehow that's the magic number. But by the time she did die in 1380, she had lived long enough to see the Pope move back to Rome. Oh, huzzah. So, huzzah. So Pope Gregory XI did return to Rome and some say that her influence was a contributing factor to the decision to move back to Rome. She although just we nagged don't know. him hard enough. Yeah, exactly. You know, although as, we don't know for sure. As a good woman does. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, at least she died knowing that one of her sort of greatest lifelong causes mm. had been won. And it was in Rome that she herself died, but her hometown of Siena wanted her body back. Of course. So this is going to bring us to a relic. Yeah. But they knew they probably wouldn't be able to get away with smuggling a full corpse out of Rome. <laughs> so her followers chopped off her head. Off her head. Yes. Oh, my stuffed, God. Yeah, I know. So good. They stuffed it in a bag. And as they were leaving the city, they were stopped by guards and they were like, oh, no, shit, now they're going to see that we've got a head in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> and they demanded to see what was in the bag. But now apparently, protected by Catherine's great holiness, when the guards opened the bag, they saw nothing in it Whoa. but rose petals. Oh. So I they let bet the... it smelled like roses too. <laughs> so they let the followers on their way. Wow. And by the time they returned to Siena, Catherine's head had also returned Back from rose petals to, like, well, back to her head. So, okay, this is a question that I have and I, you probably don't have the answer, but the idea of because in order to be resurrected, your body has to be interred in full, right, like ideally or as much of your ideally. body put together as you can. And yet with saints, I guess the idea is they don't need to be resurrected because they're already in heaven with God and that's why you can chop up their body and send them all over the world to, <laughs> yeah, to be suppose. turned into relics. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't su- know. This is just a question that I have because saints are often, they have disarticulated limbs all over the world, you know. Mm, and yes, exactly. They're yeah. not interred in whole, which is an important part of burial in other kind of Christian customs. Cultures and beliefs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I guess with saints it perhaps doesn't matter so mm, much because skip I mean that step. yeah they skip that step they don't need that step mm. because they're so miraculous anyway mm. but because as you said you know you were quite correct her head is on display <laughs> in the Basilica of San Domenico in Siena along with one of her thumbs as well yeah <laughs> the rest of her or most of the rest of her is still on display in Rome except for a foot that I think is in Venice somewhere mm-hmm. so yeah I mean basically been chopped up and they spread around the world up and the head, like, I mean, you can see pictures of the head on the internet easily enough. And, I, I mean, it just looks like any other sort of mummified yeah. remain that you could imagine. Mm. And, I mean, much like yourself, Lauren, I've been in and out of so many fucking cathedrals in Europe and I've seen so many fucking relics. I wouldn't even know what relics I've seen. Same, I have seen, to be honest. I've seen so, so many, <laughs> so many mummified arms and yeah. legs. Yeah, <laughs> and fingers. <laughs> Yeah, whose body part is this today? (laughs) They are everywhere. And, of course, we'll never actually know if any of these pieces of bodily remains are in any way actually those people (laughs) that they're supposed to be. But the fact that they exist is, as you said, like this really fascinating Mm -hmm. morbidity to it, right? And that these are these sacred objects that – and they go on tours. Yes, I know. (laughs) Relics go on tours. 
and it is fascinating. It is fascinating the way that these are venerated. But yeah, so you can see these objects in many, many places, not just in Europe. I mean, in lots of other countries as well. It's just that Europe has a huge amount of them. It's got pretty much got, I reckon, a bit of a commodity on saintly body parts. But, you know, as I said, she was eventually canonized as a saint because of these miracles and also because of Raymond of Capua, his writings on her and these stories that abounded around these miracles. And obviously, you know, if your head's in a bag and then it becomes rose petals and then it turns back into a head, that's pretty miraculous. Yeah. Who could argue with that? (laughs) So I think she's a really fascinating character and saints in general are fascinating characters and especially when we look at female saints and the way that they really specifically kind of function in this Mm. patriarchal world and well, I mean, we've only got one saint in Australia and she's a woman. Yeah. You know, Mary, Mary McKillop. Mary McKillop. There has been talk around a, possibly a second really? saint Who? for Australia. Another woman, Eileen O'Connor. I don't know her. She was from New South Wales and apparently there's been quite a push in the last couple of years really? to see if we might get her on board as our second saint. There you go. But, yeah, interesting that both of our candidates are women. Are women. Mm. When, I mean, and I don't have the exact numbers, but, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of saints. Of course, yeah. But I think in terms of, like, the gender disparity, I think there are a lot more male mm. saints than there are female saints. But the female saints are more interesting, I think. <laughs> anyway. They definitely I are. think. I actually, I mean, look, this is a a real nerd comment from me, but if you are interested in the reimaginings of saints from a feminist perspective, Michelle Roberts, who my PhD was Mm -hmm. largely about, uh, she writes... Your doctorate of the church. My doctorate, that's right. Mm -hmm. She writes a lot of fiction that reimagines the lives of saints from a feminist perspective. And a lot of those are quite like erotic and they play with a lot of these ideas that we've been talking about. They're very embodied. So she writes a lot about the body and the experience of the body and those kind of like relationships with Christ and with others Mm. that we were touching on. So if this is a topic that you find fascinating, then I do recommend picking up Michelle Roberts. So I hope even though we've gone back to the same period in history as we were at a couple of weeks ago in our last episode, we definitely have covered some different ground in this episode. And I hope it's ground that you have found interesting out there in podcast listening land because we find it interesting. (laughs) I think you can tell. (laughs) I don't know. Can you tell? There you go. Can you tell that we find it interesting? I think it's obvious. It is. It's fascinating. I think so many of the gender politics of saints and of who gets to have visions and who doesn't get to have visions and whose visions Mm -hmm. are believed and whose visions aren't believed and who gets to be ascribed, you know, authority over what has been said as we were talking about before, you know, like who gets to take ownership of the ideas that come yep. out in these things yep. is really interesting. And who gets to have visions and get away with it and who has visions and gets burnt at the stake? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think really we talk a lot about that binary between mm. the angel in the house mm-hmm. and the, you know, this idea of that constant battle between the virgin and the yep. whore, right? Yep. That constant binary and who better to sort of exemplify that end of the spectrum that that saintly end of the spectrum than a saint because I mean this is the reason why the medium the witch and the mystic were the three figures of my thesis because they share so much in common Mm. in terms of experience from that kind of sacred perspective but it's entirely how they are read and how they are treated 
by yeah. society that's different. You know, like you yeah. said, one woman's witchcraft is another woman's mysticism, depending mm. on entirely different ways of looking into the type of person she is, what yeah. family she belongs to, what class she belongs to, yep. what color her skin is, all kinds of mm-hmm. factors. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, you know, obviously that's clearly one of our main missions on this show to talk about that mm. and to unpack those sorts of ideas. So I really enjoyed looking into her and I think she was a really good mm. one. And so hopefully you do too. And I've got quite a few different resources cool. that obviously I'll leave in the show notes if people want to read more about it, which hopefully you do. But yeah. of course, in the meantime, if all of our references to our last episode also being in the 1300s meant nothing to you, it means that you haven't listened to that episode yet. <laughs> And uh, you could spend some time going back through our back catalogue and listening Mm. to some past episodes. Or if you're all caught up, maybe you want to join us over on Patreon where for as little as $2 a month you can get lots of extra episodes, episodes on people like Ruan Lingyu, who was a Chinese actress who was a star of the silent screen of Chinese cinema, whose entangled love life led to a tragic end. And, of course, if you'd like to get some merchandise, you can find us on Etsy. We're not shipping internationally at the moment, but we will be again in the near future. And if you are in Australia, then why hold back? (laughs) You can get your stuff right this minute. If you can't afford to support us financially, that's okay. We understand it's hard times, but you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts and we sure would appreciate that. So, of course, in the meantime, we hope everyone is staying safe and well out there and dealing with the crazy times that we are living in at the moment as best as you can. And until next time, we will have to say a big thank you as always to Brendan Davies for the sound. India Hui for the music. And to Dan, our executive producer. That's it from us. Stay safe, stay well. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.